This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. <laughs> and Eric. It's, I gotta warn you guys, it's an after-lunch episode. Sometimes we record episodes after we eat lunch, and we don't drink at lunch, but you could be fooled sometimes. We don't really need to drink. It's really never been a requirement for us. Oh, my God. We're pretty wacky most of the time anyway. And, yeah, all hopped up on Caesar salad and such like. <laughs> Just get out of control up in here. Eric says very funny things, though, when we're eating lunch. And they're usually in my head when we start the next episode. I I still think we should write a song and become really rich and famous. Well, that's... I totally agree. I just... Don't think you've hit on any of the songs quite yet. I think clapping should be involved. I, Apparently, that's how I tried to get us started, and that was not good enough for Eric. It involved also a dance movement <laughs> that looked like um, made a C minus in square dancing <laughs> in seventh grade. I, my Texas roots were showing. As I, when I get musical, I get Texas, like the they feet always did say. Did not match the hands. No. It was like wow, white boy dancing. <laughs> So we will not be writing a song this week. Today. No, not a hit song but, in our you cards. Know, I don't, I'm not ruling it out. It could happen. But well, let's talk about what we are doing. Let's focus. What are we doing? Okay, well, it's... Well, the... we're recording a show. We should probably, <laughs> like, try and get a little more serious. We should. And it is a serious topic. We're doing the True Crime uh, Movie Time Summer Film Festival. We're continuing East Coast Carnage Month. And we're beginning a cheerful two episodes, a true crime pairing focused on the Son of Sam murders in New York City in 1977. So get your alcohol e within reach. This is your the year you were born? I was born in 1978. This is the year I graduated from high school. This is the year you graduated from high school. I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say, this is really your era, Eric. So I, you can take the lead here as we talk about this defining cultural event of the late 70s. Do you have any memory of these killings? I do. Yeah. I mean, it was, news was covered not in the way that it is covered now. Can you give me some examples of that? Well, 
actually, no. And that's part of how it was different. Mm -hmm. Like, there were three networks, and they came on in the evening for half an hour, and they mentioned things casually around that were going on around the planet, and this was one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was part of the New York's Pretty Scary narrative. Which we have talked about before. You were a young boy when you heard about the murder of Kenny Genovese. As this right. example of New York is a horrible place. Right. This was the sort of thing you heard out of New York because you, you didn't hear much about anything. Like yeah. the 24-hour news cycles or newspapers being just soaked in blood and all of the stuff that we've become very accustomed to now was not really a part of news coverage. It was covered like the John Wayne Gacy thing was part of my mm-hmm. conscious, my awareness. and Nightmare, It was yeah. terrifying. This was happening and I was aware of it, but... Not in the way the people who lived in New York were aware of it. There wasn't that kind of terror or horror. Certainly not in the way. This is a great sort of contrast with our last two episodes. Mm -hmm. The Boston Marathon bombing, I was aware of practically from the start. Every moment, yeah. I remember when I was in college, I was running errands for um, an advertising agency. I wrote copy, answered the phone... And ran errands. That was my job. That's how I started as a writer. And um, I was I got run to the bank, and uh, the Pope got shot. Mm. And I heard it on the radio, and I remember thinking, "My God, the Pope just got shot in Rome, and I already know it." You know, mm-hmm. right now, and thinking how immediate that was. Think of now, yeah, like. The the um, the level of coverage of everything all the time. I think sometimes, I don't know if it's true or not, but sometimes I feel like maybe things are as bad as they've always been, but the coverage is so extensive now, it seems worse. Right. Yes. I'm so prevalent. Yeah. Extensive and frequent. Repetitious. Right. The yeah. idea that Fareed Zakaria was always talking about actually the world is better off than it ever yeah. has been before, but we're... You know, but we're so focused in on the, like, the evening news has now started covering the weather, mm-hmm. which I think is indicative of how good the news must be. Right. If we're down to covering the weather. And I don't mean, like, catastrophic events. Right. I mean, there's going to be a storm on the East Coast. Like, that was on the evening news last night. Mm-hmm. There weren't tornadoes. Nobody was expected to die. There were going to be torrential downpours or flooding. It was just the weather because right. they didn't have enough really horrible blood-soaked things to fill up the whole half hour of news, which is yeah. kind of great. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, it was certainly troubling. And the thing that was the most troubling about it was that it just persisted. It yeah. went on so long and nobody had any idea, no idea what was happening, who he was, who was doing it. Mm-hmm. The just sort of terrible um, killings were just continuing to happen. It was... Very zodiacy, I thought. I, there are a lot of similarities, and we did a couple episodes back. We started our festival with California Screaming Month, and we did two a pairing about the zodiac killings. A lot of similarities here. Communicating with the newspaper, debates about whether how famous to make the killer. Actually, there didn't seem to be a de- debate here. There was a debate in San Francisco, but we'll see over the course of doing a special and a and a scripted dramatic movie about this whether or not there was as much of a debate in New York City. I've actually been having an interesting conversation with a couple of the party people on oh, yeah. uh, on the Facebook page about, you know, the fact that that media coverage really often creates 
the 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 crime, the criminal, the the noteworthy criminal, like Jack the Ripper is Jack the Ripper because of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. The Zodiac Killer is the Zodiac Killer because of the newspaper. Son of Sam is the Son of Sam because that's what he named himself in communicating with, well, with the police, but still. Right, but with, with a letter that he yeah. left at a crime scene. Okay, so this is a true crime TV club, so standard disclaimer, you do not need to watch the special we're going to discuss, but if you would like to, it's called World's Most Evil Killers. It's season four, episode four. The episode is entitled David Berkowitz, and I'm, I, can I just put you on the spot? How did you refer to this uh, series in our pre-show before the mics were rolling? <laughs> Last chance true crime TV club when we desperately need a topic covered. This special with its same three British talking heads is always there. We've done it before. They cover the facts, yeah. And they're, I, it's not a bad show, but it's just the facts, ma'am. It's yeah. these, yeah, really tough talking British people yeah. telling you just what happened and that's the way it went. And yes. that's, yeah, it was, it is very much the, it is a great way to, to get the topic covered. And I thought they did a pretty good job of covering the, um, the facts in this case of getting mm-hmm. through it and, and getting it put together. But yeah, there is no, um, water here. There is nothing no. extra. It is just, um, the simple, somebody reading to you aloud from a report and then found footage and still photography that they can put together to, cobbled together show because you've never seen anybody nobody's no. interviewed there's no insight there's nothing offered there's some detectives interviewed in this there are two maybe two uh of the new york city detectives do get interviewed which shocked me but you're right no victims families are no. interviewed none of that usual documentary no, stuff. no, no background <clears throat> stuff it's just the, the anybody anybody who does come on is probably either a journalist or a police officer who is just right. confirming what the talking well not talking heads what the the announcers the, are right. basically saying because you never see who they, the talking heads are. And there's also no suspense here. They just tell you right up front who the killer is. I mean, the episode is entitled David Berkowitz. So July 29th, <laughs> 1976, <laughs> New York City. Yeah, if you're looking for a murder mystery, true crime may not uh, be this the best. To, that may be the way to go. So 18-year-old Donna Loria and 19-year-old Jody Valenti are talking outside of Donna's apartment after a night out. A man approaches them suddenly and fires multiple times into their car. Donna dies instantly. Jody is seriously wounded. The gunman is 23-year-old David Berkowitz, a delusional loner who christened himself the son of Sam. He'll go on to kill five more people in the course of a year. And shoot way more than that. He yeah. was apparently a terrible killer. Terrible shot. Thank um, God. Thank God for yeah. all the people who survived him. And what do we think of... Uh, Donna and Jody sitting I in that car together. just fucking occurred to me. I can't believe this because ev- all the other pairs of victims we're going to talk about are lovers. So maybe Donna and Jody were lovers too. I don't have any idea. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it, is, it doesn't make any difference. It's still a hideous crime. But it was one of those things I was like, huh, you know, yeah. I, you and I have sat in the front seat of the car and had a conversation after. We're you, definitely not and lovers. We're definitely not lovers. And yeah. Macking on each other. But so maybe they were just friends talking. I mean, if they went upstairs, her father would be there, and who needs his yeah. big nose in our business or whatever. But, um, yeah, it just was like, huh, really? All right. 17th of April, 1977, Valentina Suriani and Alexander Esau are shot dead, and a letter from the killer is left at the crime scene. Brian Cates, who's a former reporter from New York, I think the New York Daily News, is interviewed, and he says, The killings gripped the city. It was a time of sex, drugs, and disco, and the killings were all in lovers' lanes or near discos. Uh, 
<laughs> what are you laughing? Yeah. Disco. Disco. <laughs> <laughs> Evil disco yeah, text. Yeah, I thought this. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I know this is just, so. We're we're introduced to Jeffrey Wansell. He's one of the British talking heads that's that can claim that he lived in New York at the time. So clearly, he got this gig for that reason. Uh, Bill Gardella, who's a former detective on the case. Got a book of matches from, from <laughs> Studio 54. I was there. See, I was absolutely there. Uh, Bill Gardella, former detective on the case, says that women had begun changing their appearance in the city to avoid looking like any of the previous victims. And all of this is happening when New York is the murder capital of the United States of America. Dr. Elizabeth Yardley is their resident psychologist. She has a lot of big opinions, not all of which I agreed with because I thought many of them were superficial. But we're then going into the biography of David Berkowitz. 1953, he's born out of an affair between his Long Island mother and her married businessman boyfriend. He's given up for adoption. He's adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz, who rename him. At age seven, he learns the hidden truth from a slip of the tongue. Soon, the happy-go-lucky child becomes disruptive and difficult and is sent to a therapist. Oh, for heaven's sake. At 14, his adopted mother dies from cancer. His father remarries. Davis is not happy. David, excuse me, is not happy. June 23, 1971, Berkowitz joins the Army at age 18 and trains as a sharpshooter. Uh-oh. Writes in a letter home to a friend saying that all of these courses he's getting in the military will come in handy one day. Uh-oh. One day there will be a better world. He leaves the Army in June, uh, in June of 1974 at the age of 21. His father leaves New York after his hardware store is robbed. Because this town's not big enough for the two of us, see? Which leaves Berkowitz in the city by himself. Alone with eight million other people. All of this was listed like, how many other people have gone through things like this and not become serial so killers? So he was adopted and his yeah. mother died and his father remarried. Like, I'm sorry, is this really seriously being presented to me as what happened to this kid? As triggers of homicidal madness, again and again and again we encounter this in the story. It's like you have to account for all the other people who went through similar experiences and did not become serial killers to blame these as inciting events. The the similarities between this guy and Tsarnaev yes. are astonishing to me. Right. Like yeah. I was really, when we did the, I did them in the other order. Mm -hmm. And when I got to that point with it, I was like, oh my God. And when I, you say Zarnayev, really just for people who are listening for the first time, you're talking about the Boston the bombers, Marathon the Bombers. The Marathon right. Bombers, right. But particularly the older brother. It's like, I, I always say, like, just because they did all their killing on the same day doesn't mean they're not serial killers. Like, right. This is the same bullshit. This is some entitled, spoiled rotten kid mm -hmm. um, who's taking it out on the world, blaming the world for not getting what he wants and going out like a little psychopath and killing people because somehow he's, you know, yeah. been wronged. So he tracks down his biological mother, Betty. She's delighted to see him. His and terrible him, luck continues. Welcomes him with open arms. They meet but then he meets his half-sister, the child his mother didn't give away, and he becomes furious over the fact that he was thrown away and she wasn't. Never mind that his mother is actually welcoming him back now and offering him a support system. That's not good enough for him. And so the special speculates, is this the genesis of his hatred for women? Maybe. <sighs> or okay. maybe there was severe brain trauma at some point. Yes. You know what I mean? Like right. That would be a much more significant... Like. 
the, the guy from the Zarnayev brother was a boxer, so he got hit in the head a bunch. I didn't, you know what I mean? I meant to like, mention that when we talked about Did anybody bring up the possibility of traumatic did, brain injury? But right. I really do think that we're looking at that possibility. Like, this is such a profound personality change. These things are presented as though they're factual, but, like, those are just interesting facts about his life that don't seem to have anything to do with becoming a serial killer. Was there something really profound that happened to him? An accident, hit with a baseball bat at school? And none yeah. of those are reported on, but that would be more viable to me than this collection of facts. It's just none of it seems to really fit with. I'm not a psychiatrist, but it sounds to me what we're about to get into sounds exactly like schizophrenia. I mean, really, he begins claiming to hear voices. He goes into isolation in his apartment. He's punching holes in the walls because he thinks people are living in the walls. Like, it seems like a full-scale case of schizophrenia. Or somebody who knows what a full-scale case mm -hmm. of schizophrenia yeah. would look like and comes up with a performative because he did try and use that. Right. As a, um, as a means of defense later. And, well, we'll see how that goes. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors, and you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> So in November of 1975, as we said before, Berkowitz is living in isolation in his apartment. He's poking holes in the walls because he thinks people live in there. He's writing things on the walls like, in this hole lives the wicked king. Um, December 24th, Christmas Eve, he leaves his self-imposed exile armed with a hunting knife in Yonkers. He walks up to a young lady and starts stabbing her. Jesus. He leaves and goes off and stabs another woman a couple blocks away. Both ladies survive, but only one of them reports it, which is like, how do you not report what, being And how stabbed? do we know that she was stabbed and didn't report it? Oh like, later God. she said, oh, yeah, he stabbed me, too. I just, I had other things to do that evening, so I just, you I know, know, put a Band-Aid on it. And also, wow, he must really have been a great soldier, like, attacked women with a hunting knife and stabbed them, and they're fine? Yeah. Like, I mean. Thank God that they're fine. I'm glad they're fine, but, But like, he turned out to be a terrible shot. Uh, and for the most part, and terrible, and that to me says maybe the schizophrenia was real. Like maybe he was really not in reality during the course of these attacks. I don't know. I, I really like I, I. This really seems like the birthplace of satanic panic. Oh yeah, and I think that he leaded it, led into it, mm -hmm. leaded. He leaded into. <laughs> he led into it with. Um, a sort of performative reality of it, like coming up with that name and like, okay, so we're going to make the case for um, irresponsible dog owners are responsible That's for the son of Sam. That's what's coming up next, right. The son of Sam murders because Sam was, you know, the son of Sam was actually a dog named Harvey. Yes, he develops an angst-ridden obsession with one of his neighbors, Sam Carr, because the man's dog apparently barks at night. 
And I actually don't have the dog's name written down. Maybe that shows up in the movie I think it's next Harvey. week. Harvey. Okay. Harvey, like the giant invisible bunny that was Jimmy Stewart's best friend. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, he throws a petrol bomb. That's a British expression for a Molotov cocktail, I think. I think. Into the into Sam Carr's yard. He targets the dog with violence and he begins setting fires in nearby apartment buildings. He's a great guy. He then goes and buys a bulldog 44 caliber revolver. He finds the victims we opened the special with and shoots at them. That's uh, Donna and Jody, who are sitting outside their parents' house talking. Jody is shot in the thigh. Donna is fatally wounded in the neck. Donna's father rushes down to the scene, and they manage to recover a bullet. This is the cops now once they arrive. And it turns out that gun is very rare. So in addition to being a bad shot, he's also either itching to get caught or just incredibly stupid. Um, Berkowitz will later tell the police that he sang a song on the way home from the killing because the demons had told him to go out and kill and finally he'd obeyed. The police, however, don't know that this is part of a pattern yet. They have no connection between it and the earlier stabbings. And it'll be a while before they do connect them to the killings. And this will piss Berkowitz off because he's out for recognition. Not actually a trait of schizophrenia. That's true. (laughs) <laughs> point, counterpoint on the schizophrenic right. argument here. Yeah, not, I'm not really buying that. Three months later, October 3rd, 1976, he targets a couple who are out on a date in Queens. Carl Madero is sitting in the passenger side with his girlfriend, but he's got long hair. And so when he is shot first, it's later believed that Berkowitz fired on him because he thought he was the woman in the car. Both of them survive, which is good news. November 27th, 16-year-old Donna Damacy and 18-year-old Joanne Lamino. Um, are out for a walk. He walks over to them, says a few words, and shoots them. Damacy survives. Lamino is confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Horrible. Um, the killings, they just, they just keep coming. It was one of those specials where it was like victim name, victim name, victim name. January 30th, 1977, 26-year-old Christine Foyne is on a date with her fiancé, John Deal. Berkowitz spots them, runs up to their car, shoots and instantly kills Christine. Her fiancé manages to escape and run for help. The young couple were just about to tell their family about their engagement. This is the first killing that jumps out to the police and reveals some sort of connection to the previous shootings. Up until then, they were thinking the other ones were maybe mafia hits or whatever. It was New York. People were killed all the time, and so they just were part of the the great mass of killings then. It was, like I say, it was the murder capital of America at that point. So there were a lot of people in New York and there were a lot of murders. And it was just sort of, that seemed like regular uh, day-to-day in New York rather than something exceptional. But they began to link up the forensics and the clues and it all began to point towards there being a single killer in a lot of these cases. Three days later, a 16-man homicide task force is established by the NYPD. They're pretty clear on the fact that whoever this killer is, he's targeting females with long, dark hair. He'll later say that it was he was going after his mother. He would see his mother sitting in those cars, and that's why he shot. Except he also shot women who didn't have yeah. long, dark hair. Like, it's just all of this is very... Mm-hmm. Like, this is somebody who wanted to be attention, and he wanted to be famous, and he was sort of leaning into his serial killer profile that he was building as he went along. March 8th, Forest Hills section of Queens. He strikes a lone victim in the early evening, which is out of his pattern. College student Virginia Vassieri, it's only 7.30 p.m. She sees him approaching her and raises the books she's carrying to block her head. Poor thing. And he shoots through them and kills her instantly. 
He even says goodbye to a passerby as he leaves the scene. Hmm. Also not a schizophrenic the trait. The b- bullet... <laughs> I know. The bullet, I actually agree with Introducing you. yourself to other people at the murder scene. The just bu- so they know it was you. The bullet they removed from Virginia's skull confirms that they have a serial killer. It's the same gun from the Christine Freund shooting. So the police hold a press conference revealing that information to the public and announcing the caliber of the bullet. And so the killer becomes the forty-four caliber killer. The Omega Task Force, as it's being called, is boosted from 16 cops to 30 cops. Meanwhile, Berkowitz has decided to travel again. He's shifted over to the Bronx, and there he kills Valentina Suriani and Alexandra Asava, who are sitting in a parked car. At this point, I'm sorry to be this person. After this many killings, I was like, who is sitting in a parked car in New York, in, in the New York City area or the five boroughs? Like, I would just... And I think part of what I think it is in the movie sort of gets into it is it was a time of, like social change people were being more liberated and they were being more sexually free but a lot of them were still living with their parents yes <laughs> so they needed to be in the car outside and to get busy as you know of the you know of that particular area there's not a lot of extra space like mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty filled environment it's mm-hmm. full and getting a room was a big expense that maybe people didn't necessarily have you had a car which right. is huge expense in new york mm-hmm. now and certainly back then it was probably proportionally so. Yeah. I think probably a lot of people were sitting in their cars or making out in their cars and a few of them got killed. Yeah. Rather than it being the isolated incident. Sure. Uh, Bergowitz fires through the front windows. Valentina dies within a minute. Alexander dies two hours later. But this is the crime scene at which Berkowitz decides, I'm not getting enough credit, so I'm going to leave a letter for the cops. Or I'm going to rebrand myself because I don't like being called the 44 caliber killer. That seems too generic. He objects to being called a woman hater, which is apparently something that's been said about him in the press already. He says repulsive, horrible, crazy things about being a great hunter, which he is not. He's just a monster, which is very different. The spelling is good, but the word women is spelled incorrectly throughout the letter. It's spelled W-E-M-O-N, which is similar to demon. Eric is rolling his eyes. Which is, again, his continuing to brand himself as somehow satanically driven by these magical voices that he's scripting on the walls, the very walls of his apartment Mm -hmm. at home, which... Does he have a job or does he just have an apartment because he's such a privileged character, he doesn't have to work for it? He signs off as Son of Sam, and there is the name. There it is. There is the birth of the name that will go become associated with his horrible the legacy. The brand name. Yes, his own self-applied brand name. The press goes along with it, and it's only revealed later that he is probably referring to his neighbor Sam Carr, who he's sending threatening anonymous letters to in his Labrador Harvey. There it is. You were right. The dog's name is Harvey. Because it's in your notes, I'm right? Yeah, it is. My notes are always right. I was actually right before we got to that. Yeah, yeah. probably because you read the notes. You just read ahead like you usually do. You didn't even send me these notes until this morning. I was busy. (laughs) I was busy watching porn last night. Very busy. (laughs) Um, Swamped. Swamped. Okay, now Berkowitz is escalating... The situation at his apartment, which is also really not smart if you don't want to get caught. I'm out murdering people. I've sent a letter to the police, and now I'm fucking with my neighbors more aggressively. So he um, shoots. He fires a gun at Harvey the dog because he's become convinced that the dog is sending him messages. I know. That's what he says later about the situation with the dog. 
Harvey, dog lovers everywhere, rest easy. Harvey is not seriously injured. Because this guy is a terrible shot. Yeah. The people who died were the the exception yeah. and not the rule. He fires at a lot more people than he kills, which is way more. Seems like something horrible to be grateful for, but in the case of really this grateful son of a bitch, because this horrible asshole. He writes a letter to Jimmy Breslin, who at the time is the top columnist in New York City. Because that's what you do if you're a schizophrenic. True. Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing, he writes. And he confesses in the letter to the murder of Donna Loria and says she was a wonderful girl and her death should be memorialized. The Daily News waits to publish the letter until Sunday. When they have the largest circulation. Because, you know, everybody has a part to play in this horrible story. I was going to say, thoughts, Eric Shockwin? Well, there it is. My favorite detail about the whole case, which we will see dramatized in the movie really next week. Really do love this. Really do love this detail. The NYPD starts planning decoy female mannequins and parked cars to try to entrap the killer. God, I wish that had worked. It doesn't work, but that would be a great story. He doesn't story. shoot a single mannequin, but he's such a bad shot, it doesn't mean he didn't shoot at them. Right. He just didn't hit one. On June 26, Berkowitz strikes again in Queens. Both the man and woman escape with minor injuries. A month later, 31st of July, in Brooklyn, Stacy Mokowitz goes out on a date with Robert Vellante. With her long blonde hair. Right. And they even say to the fan, don't go out on a date. There's somebody out there killing lovers. And she says, it's like, Ma, I have blonde hair. It won't matter. She ends up getting shot. Uh, they head to a park in Bensonhurst. He, Berkowitz fires four times into their car and then flees. Robert manages to get out. Stacy is gravely injured, and Robert is blinded. Stacy is pronounced dead 38 hours later. This is apparently the moment that unleashes absolute hysteria in New York City. Because he killed a blonde girl. Because no one is safe, according to the New York Post, because he clean killed a blonde girl. Fuck in, all those brunettes. In Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah, okay. 75 detectives and 225 patrolmen are now working full-time on the case. We've been interviewing Bill Gardell right along, but now it's revealed that he was called out to investigate the Bensonhurst murders. Three days later, a 49-year-old woman who was out walking her dog just minutes before Stacy's shooting... What? Just say I it. You're bursting. You're bursting. I love this part of the story. She says she saw a scary man carrying something in his hand the night of the shooting. She was afraid of the guy, did a U-turn, and hurried back into her apartment. Then she heard the shots, the shots that killed Stacy and blinded Robert. She also says she saw a car being booked by a patrol officer for parking near a hydrant. The detectives check, and there's no record of a summons. They check again, and there's no record of a summons. They go back to her, and she says, I saw a parking ticket. You boys go check again. Good New York broad. She's not having it. I'm telling you what I saw. If you can't find the ticket, that's on you. It doesn't mean it didn't get issued, and it doesn't mean I didn't see it. So they check a third time. Afraid to tell her no. They check for a third time. (laughs) Time. And they find a ticket. What do you know? Because I'm right. I told you. The ticket is registered to a David Berkowitz. They caught the son of Sam Killer through a fucking parking ticket. That was seen by a woman walking her dog who also heard the shots. Like, that's my favorite part of this story. So uh, uh, James Justice is the detective who was sent out to talk to the officer who was giving out the parking tickets. He's the one that coughs up David Berkowitz. doesn't cough up Berkowitz's name. He provides it because he doesn't know really what's going on or what they're talking about. Justice calls the Yonkers (laughs) PD. 
uh, because that's where Berkowitz lives. And he says, look, I, I'm looking for a guy named David Berkowitz. And she says, oh, him. I know him. Because it turns out the dispatcher who answered the call... I can't believe this detail. ...is the daughter of Sam Carr. The daughter of Sam. The daughter of Sam answered the fucking phone. And she's like, this guy is, lives near my father. He's completely nuts. He's harassing my father and his dog. He's out of his mind. He's shot at the dog. She gives him the whole story. He leaves strange letters outside my dad's door. So two detectives are sent out to his apartment... They find his Ford Galaxy parked outside. They peer through the windows, and on the floor of the rear of the car is an army duffel bag with a semi-automatic rifle protruding. It's like a get-caught package. It's like he, he hung a sign on his car saying, I want to be caught. I just, yeah, this just falls together. The car was unlocked. There's a letter addressed to the Suffolk County police chief saying, you can't stop me, I'm coming out. So they're like, it looks like this is the son of Sam's apartment. We're going to stake out this building. So four hours later at 10 p.m., the killer approaches his car. The detectives, the detectives, excuse me, I'm getting too excited, descend on him with guns out, and Berkowitz says, what took you so long? And he smiles. Yeah, because he's so troubled by being these voices and that demon dog. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? <laughs> So in the car, he's been arrested. David Berkowitz is expressing excitement to the detectives about the press that will be waiting for them at the like station. Like schizophrenics always do. Right. Excitement about being famous for killing people. Yeah. Yeah. They march him in front of the cameras. Meanwhile, Detective Gardell is searching his apartment and finds photos of all of his victims on the floor. I think those they meant press clippings by photos. Yeah. He, they find he's cut holes in the walls because voices came out of the walls telling him to kill. He wrote a note dictating... <laughs> Those two things are not necessarily related. But. He wrote a note dictating what one of the voices said to him. Hi, I'm Mr. Williams, and I live in this hole. I don't... I, I, this is my best Mr. Williams voice. I have several children I'm turning into killers. Wait till they grow up. My neighbors I have no respect for, and I treat them like shit. Sincerely, Williams. So is he son of Williams now? I just don't know. Strange, satanic symbols. symbols all over the place. Like, he's building this... Narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. Psychiatrists are split on whether or not he's fit to stand trial. He's eventually deemed fit because... He he's not schizophrenic. <laughs> he understood the charges against him. He consults a priest... And after this counsel, he refuses to mount an insanity defense, maybe because he knew it wouldn't hold up. <laughs> he pleads guilty 
There is no trial, and on June 12, 1978, 25-year-old David Berkowitz is sentenced to 365 years in prison. And that concludes the special, but I know it does not conclude Eric Shaw Quinn's thoughts on this well, case. Well, it's just one of those. It was the same kind of story. It was the, I'm not getting what I want, and so the world needs to pay. And, you know, if I get to be well-known and famous, right. then great. You know, even better than it's a part of the cel- the wonderful celebration of me. But I really just see a spoiled, rotten guy. Mm-hmm. Of course, who, yeah. Like there's no, like it doesn't. Maybe it's true that after he was imprisoned, he was sent to some psychiatric facility where he was treated for and medicated for schizophrenia. But I've never heard that. Have you? I haven't. Yeah, there is no evidence of any of that. But the thing that the detail that really caught me in watching this special was this is the beginning of satanic panic. Yes, absolutely. Which is really interesting. That's full circle for us. Our very first true crime Mm -hmm. um, TV time was about. Yeah. The, wasn't it? It was the, like second or third. It was our first batch. Right yeah. up, right up front, we dealt with that satanic panic in New Mexico. Yes, where those um, lesbian women were falsely imprisoned for um, child molestation. A, a they were falsely. Of, yeah. One of their ex-husbands accused them of falsely molesting a daughter. Uh, uh, their their daughter. And and just whipped up these accusations, and the daughter later admitted that she was coached into doing it by the, the estranged husband, you know, and the, and the law enforcement and the judges at the time were inclined to believe it because they were lesbians, and they would never admit it because they said, we are not guilty, and they were eventually exonerated. The documentary was called South of Salem, and I think it's like yeah. episode three or four of our podcast. Yeah. Um, and that is, you're right. This is the beginning, and because what the satanic panic morphed into throughout the 80s, which is, this is just two, three years before, was uh, child molestation panic. It was this belief that there was the McMartin preschool case, there was there was the South of Salem story. There were a lot of stories of people believing that their children were being molested by satanic cults and that these rituals also involved murder and sacrifice. And there was- and In a, fact, it was the Catholic Church the whole time. But the, the I hate to say it, <laughs> I know, right? But the the joke, show me on the puppet, was sort of born of this time because these psychiatrists would use puppets and they would hand them to the children and the children were supposed show to me where the bad show man me where the bad man you. touched yeah, you. absolutely. And it revealed massively unethical excesses in psychiatry, you know, and narratives being thrust on children that were not true or based in fact – and lives were destroyed. The McMartin family, their lives were destroyed. They were never guilty of anything. You no. Know? And the thing that's the most preposterous about any of it is there aren't rituals in any sort of, you know, like none of it's factually based. There's yeah. there's no satanic religion in which children or anyone is sacrificed. There's just no evidence of that. Like. It could happen, but it's not like there's this established. There's a television show on CBS right now called, I think it's called Evil. Evil, yes. Where, for some reason, um, the district attorney's office hires this woman who's an expert on, um, I don't know, evil, evil, <laughs> evil practices or something. I don't supernatural, know what, you're, you're supernatural, saying. Supernatural, yeah. yeah, and because. Somebody claims that the devil made him do it. Mm-hmm. This is kind of d- defense. And I watched the pilot and thought, 
you don't have to actually mount a response to the devil made me do it as right. a defense. Like you could just say, please present any evidence of the devil. Thank right. you. Yeah. I'm short of that. Then this didn't happen. Like right. it isn't a thing. It's not right. a thing. And all through the satanic panic, there's this effort to assign this behavior to a group of people that doesn't exist mm -hmm. and behaviors that nobody is participating in in pursuit of a religion that simply isn't happening. You yeah. know, Wiccans and that sort of thing don't do anything like this. They don't worship. The only people who worship the devil are Christians. Yeah. You know, people who believe in that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a part of anybody else's religious practices because nobody else believes in the devil. Right. And so... Satanic panic is just this absurd excuse for persecuting people who, who are, are different, different than you. Yes, exactly. Who are different than you. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It is a, And it is also, as we discussed, and I think this was one of the parallels you were drawing between this and the Sarnayev case and the Boston Marathon bombings, it, the radicalization story, the satanic panic, all of these are about contact with a poisonous belief system can turn anyone into a monstrous murderer. And the narratives of these individuals' lives, when they're actually caught and convicted of murder, don't suggest that. Not at all. They're because somebody else could have come into contact with that belief system, that magazine, that website, and not gone out and murdered multiple people. Yeah. You know, so it is, it is crazy. And I think, you know, there may have even been, I think we have done episodes about killers who claimed to worship Satan, in addition to ingesting enormous amounts of cocaine and being drug runners and being involved in all these other criminal activities <laughs> that had nothing to do with the devil and predated their right. uh, uh, professed allegiance They're to really him. They're really just horrible. They're, They're just, horrible just horrible people. Yeah. You know, I just, and, and it's just, oh God. Anyway. But you're right. This was really the beginning. Not this is really, it's like he's seeing it and he's leaning into it as his way of kind of creating this character. And then it becomes this self-perpetuating prophecy. Like it gets built on moving forward into the 80s. As, right. As people began to see this as a viable explanation for why somebody did something. Like the devil they were made serial killers, so right, it must yeah. be the devil. It's like. No, as a matter of fact, it has nothing to do with that unless it's, you know, unless that was what made the people in the Catholic Church do it because they actually do believe in the devil. I think there's something incredibly comforting about this type of belief for people because it gives them something to stay away from in their own minds. I'll never be evil. I'll never act out in a violent or hostile or dangerously aggressive manner if I just avoid statues of the devil. Or satanics, you know, whatever. If I just keep myself pure. If I just don't worship the devil, everything right. will work out great. Like, right. maybe. I don't know. I have no idea. I can't really vouch for that because I don't think the devil exists. But no. sure, that could, couldn't hurt. So, however, on another... So, like, so, however. Well, I was just saying, I was we're drawing parallels between it and Sarnayev and the Boston Marathon bombing, but I was also thinking of the Zodiac case, which we did a pairing about a few episodes ago, because roughly the same time period, 1970s, yeah. big city, women moving around on their own for the first time, really. Women's liberation. They all say the beginning of the serial killer phenomenon in the United States, which it's kind of ridiculous to call it a phenomenon because, thankfully, there are not that many serial killers. It's horrible when it happens, and I think it's worthy of our attention when it happens, and we should find out where they come from and all that sort of stuff. But the FBI doesn't actually devote a lot of resources to it because there aren't a lot of them. It would be a waste of money. And the other thing that I always think is interesting is were they happening all along and we just began yes, to be aware right. of it? Exactly. 
or did they really start at this point? Like yeah. news coverage was better. Things happening to women seemed to be more important to people mm-hmm. because women were no longer being considered you know, like property and stuff. Um, they were actually being considered right. citizens. And so things happening to them were actually thought, began to be thought of as bad or worth investigating. My also belief on that, which I think is, I, I agree with you, and I think it has to do with my earlier point, is that if you were a, a male serial predator who wanted to kill female victims, you had to be jacked up. You had to go after sex workers. You had to go after women who would who were not um, tethered <laughs> Tied to a man, essentially. Looser women, to use that expression. And in the 60s and 70s, with women gaining greater autonomy, they were, like I said, traveling around, and they became available momentarily as targets in a way that they might not have been before if it was customary for every woman out in public to have a male chaperone, for instance, unless she was a sex worker working the streets at night. So the pool of available targets to those predators became such that they were hitting targets with greater visibility whose family you know that's just my my theory and i think I mean, you're I right i think that's possibly a part of the 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 case but i think that it's been pretty like i think violence against women is not a, a recent phenomenon no, and i don't but i think reporting of it is yes and it's very hard for me looking at both those stories zodiac and this one not to see this as a bat like We've talked about this idea of the serial killer is really just someone who's pissed off and aggrieved about not getting the life that they think they deserve, right? Okay. But there's also this sense of punishing women in a lot of what they do. And I think it is like a backlash to modern feminism. I'm seeing women out enjoying their lives, enjoy making their own choices around men and who they want to be with and maybe not choosing men who look and sound like me. And so I'm going to punish them with a weapon. I think there is a revenge narrative in so many of the serial killers we talk about, but it's not a justified revenge. No. They're not actually trying to square a real debt. It's no. a psychological wound that they feel they have suffered. Right. This woman is never going to pay any attention to me, so I'm just yeah. going to kill her yeah. in advance yeah. rather than, you know, ask her to dinner or something that might actually work. Right. But And then there's another part of me that just thinks trying to apply any logic to this frame of mind is just, it's a fool's errand. There is a childishness to it. Yeah. There is a sense of, you know, it's like a tantrum. Right. Of some sort. And there may be deeper seated psychological, I think in some cases people are, you know, really are full on having some sort of mental imbalance. I think schizophrenia really does exist and very possibly might result in deranged and possibly dangerous and fatal behavior. But I think a lot of the people that we see in these crimes are just simply in some way outraged or aggrieved about their lot in life and Mm -hmm. taking it out on rather than taking responsibility or making the effort to make a change, taking it out on the world and people around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, Let's pretend like we haven't already watched the movie we're going to talk about, Summer of Sam. Like, what sort of movie would you make about this case? I would be hard-pressed to come up with a movie about this case. (laughs) I have to say— You hate this guy so much. I really just find him to be this contemptible, self-involved, spoiled, rotten asshole who may or may not have experienced some sort of— 
brain trauma that altered his perception in some way that he could come reason himself to this point. I don't think that's necessary, but I think a wrestler and a boxer were our last two serial mm-hmm. killers. So both of them might have had head injuries. I don't know. Like, I'm willing to allow for that possibility. It seems unlikely in all three cases. Right. Because there wasn't other evidence. Uh, but it is, I'm willing to allow for that possibility. But they don't seem very interesting to me. So this story does not call, this story does not churn up your memories of the 1970s in, in a darkly nostalgic way this doesn't you know because like sometimes like there are aspects of the zodiac case that remind me of being a young child in san francisco and stories my parents told about that time and all that sort of stuff but i and i think there are some incidents in history that that sort of make us feel connected to a certain time period but it sounds like you're pretty far removed from the story it sounds like it was a new york story in a time where news was just not as national well, it was as it about is now. new york was so much about murder anyway yeah. it was considered such a dangerous place to be david letterman used to begin his show the most dangerous live from the most dangerous city in in america isn't that yeah i, I think, think that was david right. letterman Something like that yeah. like it was kind of a commonly held belief. New York went bankrupt during this mm-hmm. period, and people were like, eh. mm-hmm. you know, like it was not. When I moved to New York in the eighties, it was not a lovely place. What year did you move to New York City? I'm going to say eighty one. Wow. Okay. 81. I think so. So not that long after um, this series of events, and it was, it was bleak. What was the know? city like? Like the landscape of the city. Like the, the, the part of I lived on uh, West 44th Street between mm-hmm. 8th and 9th, so not far from Times Square at all. And Times Square was terrifying. Really? Yeah. It was terrifying. It was, um, there was, you know, there was, of course, the, the sex trade was plied out of there. was all these X rated movie theaters on 42nd Street and on Times Square and peep shows and that sort of thing. I don't think that's what made it terrifying. In fact, I'm sorry that that can't coexist, but because of we've criminalized so much behavior in and around sex, it it's kind of one goes hand in mm-hmm. hand with the other. If we would decriminalize prostitution and other aspects of sex, we might be able to begin to break the hold that mm-hmm. um, criminal people have on human trafficking and, and right. prostitution and those kinds of things. Anyway, um, there were burned out cars. There were people living on literally on the streets in a way that not in a homeless kind of way, mm-hmm. but in a sort of like operating there and wow. attacking you. And it was the police did not go in the subway because it was so terrifying. The police did Jesus. not go into the subway. They started something called the um, the Guardian Angels. Right. These um, young men in red berets would go down and they would just patrol because somebody had to and nobody was. Mm-hmm. And the, the city had kind of given itself over to um, a lawlessness, mm-hmm. a sort of um, reluctance to um, expect people to behave better. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a very frightening uh, place. It wasn't as frightening as the one that had been depicted to me, but, mm-hmm. you know, I was attacked on the street yeah. walking home from the subway station because I looked up. Wow. And so that's what tourists do, and they were on me, and I mean under... And on you, I mean like a... Uh, I pa- literally physically box. assaulted me, slammed me up against one of those rolled down, Jesus you know, Christ. over the window walls, and... um. 
I think the thing that saved me was my Southern manners. I said, excuse me. Yeah. I acted as though it was my fault that yeah. they had crashed into me in the middle of the street, dragged me off to the side of the road and thrown me against a steel sort of garage door window covering, security Jesus covering on that. They stepped back for a second and I ran. Wow. And they pursued me mm. um, for blocks. God. And I knew that the police would either be at uh, Schubert Alley or outside where the New York Times, where the trucks came out with the New York Times, they would be stand. I knew they would be there, one of those right. two places. And I, that was down the street. That was on 44th Street, right down the street from my apartment. So I ran there. Wow. I ran towards a security guard, and they backed up a little bit. So I got a little more of a lead. Mm -hmm. When they discovered it was a security guard, they, you know, relaunched their pursuit. But I managed to make that corner, and I ran down there. I skidded to a halt at the... Um, at, right at the police, they were at the Times. They were at the Times Building. I was mm -hmm. right, waiting at the loading dock, um, and I turned back just as they made the corner, and we made eye contact, and I went, <laughs> gave them a good raspberry, and then I shook the hand of every policeman standing there and mm -hmm. thanked them for being there, and then I went home and fell apart. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like literally, I just got off the subway and looked oh, up, Jesus and they attacked Christ. me. I could never figure out where the subway openings were in Times Square. So I always had to look up to find out where I had gone. I would just go to the nearest staircase and then then I would determine where I was and I knew how to get home from oh, there. But Christ. that was all it took. And it was, you know, nine o'clock at night. It was not late. God. I so was just coming home from dinner. How much how long did you stay in New York after that experience? Um oh I would say Three or four more months. Like, okay. it, I didn't, I couldn't find an apartment mm -hmm. <laughs> because it was such a great place to live. <laughs> there was this huge demand for apartments. I, I you know, like, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up going back and I didn't go back for quite a number of years until, um, Say Uncle was first coming out, and mm -hmm. I was like... Your novel, right. Yeah. Wow, this is really... The transformation had begun. And that's the thing I just wanted to tease for next week, because next week we're doing the second half of the pairing. We're talking about the movie Summer of Sam. Summer of Sam was made in 1999 by a New Yorker about a New York that existed closer to when you're talking about. Wait, it no longer existed in 19... Uh, by right. 1999, New York had been saved. It was transformed. Formed from would, the New York I knew. And I would say the transformation started to happen around 93 or 94 because we in started... The, in we, the Clinton years. We, we got a, a condo there and we began going there on a regular basis. My parents bought one in Midtown, which would have been uh, kind of inconceivable before then. It's a lot of real estate development moving back into the city, all that sort of stuff. And we could walk unmolested to Times Square from 56th Street uh, to go to Broadway musicals, and we did that often, and that mm. was 93 or 94. Yeah. And my father never would have done that with me in a time that you're describing. Oh, no, nobody would have done it. It, yeah. would have been, it would have been like Bruce Wayne and his parents yeah. going for uh, coming home from the opera. It was, yeah, it was, yeah. It was a much scarier, different kind of environment than, than existed by that point. It, the, the change in the economy yeah. um, and a more sort of sense of we're going to actually enforce the rules. Yeah. Um, began to change New York and it is unrecognizable today compared Times Square is, you know, like a family place yeah. and let the kids run up and down. There's an M and M store. Yeah. Where there used to be a peep show, you know, mm -hmm. like it's really, it is a, I'm glad because I love New York and I'm mm -hmm. really glad that we saved it. But a big part of it was about investing in government, investing in infrastructure and investing in the city um, in a way that 
wasn't available until Clinton and that mentality began to get back into office. I, I don't think you can overstate the impact of, mm-hmm. of Clinton's economy on transforming this country. Yes, and Giuliani tried to take credit for it as mayor and then became a seditious traitor and will likely end up in jail. <laughs> and so if you weren't sure where our bias was here on Christopher and Eric, you now know what you're listening to and who. Okay, so next week... True Crime Movie Time presents Summer of Sam, directed by Spike Lee, starring Mira Sorvino and John Leguizamo, and a cast of thousands, as we will see. Thousands. Um, once again, you do not have to watch the movie. If you want to, we welcome you to, but we will serve it up in such detail and with such opinions that you will feel like you did. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.